Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Life is crazy. And it will always find a way to throw things at you that you don't expect. Growing up, I was the kid that could not learn any lesson any way other than the hard way. My parents would teach me stuff. They would give me good advice, sound instruction. I'm like, now nah, I'm going to do the dumb thing. Always pick the path of most resistance. And so like, dad would be like, hey, don't put your fork in a power outlet. I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. Thank you for suggesting it. And then I learned why. So the joke in my family was that my sister lived without sin for 16 years because she watched what I did and then didn't do that. <laughs> so nobody was more surprised than me when I got this call into ministry. I was at a summer youth conference, and I get this thing, and I'm like, oh, hey, you're going to go into ministry. And I'm like, I just, my first assumption was that message was meant for somebody else, and I just stepped in the middle of it. Like, sorry, God, I accidentally intercepted your message. Let me just move back, and you can give it to whoever you wanted to give that to, because I know you're not talking about me. Like, Jesus, have you met me? Like, this ain't going to work. Like, I grew up in church. I've seen preachers my whole life, and they all had the same characteristics. They were wise, but soft-spoken. They were gentle. They took a long time to get to the point, and they tended to avoid confrontation. I'm like, none of that describes this. Thank you. So I get this call, and I'm like, okay, I guess I tried arguing with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever done that. I don't recommend it. It does not go well. So finally, I give in. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to college for this. And it was the last summer after just graduated high school, getting ready to go, and I was waiting tables. I had this one table, it was two couples at the table, and uh, this lady's talking to me, what are you doing with your life? I'm like, well, you know, I just graduated, and so I'm going to go to a Bible college, and I'm going to learn to be a preacher, pastor, minister, priest thing, I don't know what to call it. And she's like, oh, okay, well, if you'd like a job, I can give you a job that'll pay a lot better than this one. I'm like, hey, you have my attention. She's like, I don't know what you make here, but you come work for me, you make probably three, four hundred bucks a night. Now you really have my attention. She says, I own a club, and my brain just takes off. I'm like, oh, yes. Okay, I know what she's going to say next. She's going to fulfill a lifelong dream of mine to be a bouncer. Okay? Like, this is always something that I thought I would be good at, like standing at a door with a black T-shirt with my arms folded. Like, I feel like I could really just nail that job. So like, this is what she's going to want me to do, despite the fact that I'm not old enough to go into the club, but I'm going to stand outside and keep people out. Keep in mind, I grew all the way through college, all the way. So when I was in high school, like at this point, I'm like 5'4", maybe 140 pounds. Like I'm like a really white stick figure, okay? So there's nothing. I'm like, what am I going to do? Like I just figured naturally the only thing that's preventing me from being intimidating is the job title and the black T-shirt. Like that's going to change the whole thing to scare people by looking up at them. So I'm sure she's going to say bouncer. That's the only reasonable thought in my head that she could follow up with. 
and I'm about ready to accept the job. I'm like, I'm in. Let's do this. And then right as I'm about to agree, I realized that the word that came out of her mouth wasn't bouncer. It was stripper. <laughs> to which I was really confused because like three seconds ago, I told you I was going to a Bible college to learn to be a preacher. And this is how you thought to follow up that piece of information? I'm like, look, I'm real dumb, but I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to be a stripper preacher. I really think that my school that I'm planning to go to would frown on me taking my clothes off to pay for it. Like, how is that supposed to work? And weirdly, after service, last service, I had five people ask me if I took the job. I'm like, did you hear the part where I said it paid three, four hundred dollars a night? Of course I took the job. No. Gosh, like I'd have to work the day shift because like my face, like what? No, life is crazy, okay? And no matter how much you prepare, it's always going to throw something at you that you don't expect. And that's why this particular book of the Bible is so important. So this week we're starting a new series called Uncommon Sense. We're studying through the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs is one of three books in the Old Testament that falls into the wisdom category. It's Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. Now, we're not going to walk through it as we typically would, kind of verse by verse, because it makes absolutely no sense to do that with Proverbs. It's not written that way. Proverbs is a series of wise sayings or poems stringed together in in no particular order. So if we tried to teach it verse by verse, we'd just sound like crazy people, just going all over the place. And if you've got a Bible to Bible app, we're going to focus on Proverbs chapter 6, uh, verse 6 this morning. A Proverbs, before we get into it too far, I want to tell you a little bit about it. Proverbs is, uh, it's a wisdom book written by a guy named, primarily by a guy named King Solomon. There's several contributors, but he's the main guy. Solomon is the son of King David, Israel's greatest king. And in 1 Kings 3, God comes to Solomon in a dream and he asks him, what would you ask of me? Basically, here's a blank check. What do you want? I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked God to give him the wisdom to lead God's people well. And so Solomon was regarded as the wisest man in the ancient world. He writes 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. I have days where I struggle to craft an email. But the importance of this book is that it fills a gap that nothing else in the Old Testament really covers. See, most of the Old Testament we think of as being law. Laws provide very clear directions. Do this, don't do that in particular circumstances. But there are three flaws to the law. The first is you cannot create a law to address every situation in life. And even if you could, it'd be impossible to remember them all. Second, following the law strictly doesn't tend to lead people to Jesus. The Pharisees in the New Testament were the most incredible legalistic pursuers and followers of the law. I mean, they kept it to a level that is just absolutely bananas. Like, they're like, hey, it says to tithe, so let's count out grains of rice to make sure that we're tithing those. Like, that takes so long. And yet, they were antagonists and enemies of Jesus, opposing him all throughout his ministry. So, following the law strictly doesn't tend to lead to Jesus. And thirdly, the law is black and white. And so much of life fits into the gray. Life is crazy. Life is messy. 
Life is far too complex to navigate with simple do and don't statements. And so to help us navigate through the complexities and challenges of life so that we can honor God and live well in this world, God provides us with some of his wisdom. Now, it's important to understand that Proverbs are not promises. They're probabilities. So when Proverbs says, fear the Lord, love wisdom, and things will go well for you, typically, under normal circumstances, that is how things will work. It's how things will work a majority of the time. But that does not mean it's always how things will work. There are lots of exceptions to that particular general rule. Like Job. Or when Proverbs says, teach your children the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. Generally, that's true. But that does not mean that if your children wander, you failed them as parents and didn't teach them the right things. So it's important when we read Proverbs to think of it as a guide, not a guarantee. That this is life coaching from the creator of the universe. And, the Pro and Proverbs begins... Uh, Solomon opens it up in verse 2 with an instructions about the purpose and the goal of the book itself. So Proverbs 1-2 says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instructions in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, their words of the wise and their riddles. So the goal of this book is to teach us how to have success and peace through godly virtue, integrity, and generosity. And Proverbs covers a wide variety of subjects, which is what makes it difficult to just walk through, but it talks about marriage, family, ch raising children, parenting, conflict, forgiveness, debt, work, sex, justice, and everything else you can imagine. So what we're going to do in the series is grab five primary themes from the book of Proverbs and, um, and address one of them each particular week. And this week, we're going to start with work. See, work is one of those things that we have a love-hate relationship with, right? It's exhausting, it's stressful, but it's rewarding. The Bible equates work to childbirth. It's painful, it's hard, but the result is a joyous reward. You see, we were not made to be idle. And that is a fundamental thing that we have to understand. Work is not a byproduct of sin. Work is a part of our design. We were made to work, to move, to be active in the world that God created for us. So in the garden, God tells Adam and Eve to fill and subdue it. They had jobs and work to do. Right, so in this paradise perfection that God made, they weren't just laying around in a hammock sipping on Mai Tais. We had work. Because work is good. Work is part of what we were created for. Now, when sin comes, work falls under a curse. That is, the work would become more painful, more difficult, more exhausting. Work is still good, but now it carries with it some baggage. And so before we get into our text specifically, I want to share with you several of the Proverbs that deal with the subject of work to give you a kind of a general view of how Proverbs addresses this issue. Uh, Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the sloth will be put to forced labor. 
13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. 23.4, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. 14.23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Then we're going to focus in. Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. The sluggard is mentioned numerous times throughout Proverbs as someone who can't make up their mind, who lays around, who doesn't complete tasks, and who avoids conflict. And the problem with the sluggard is that they are passive. They don't stand for anything. They don't have investment, engagement. They're not rooted in anything. And so the, the sluggard tends to just get blown back and forth like a, like a leaf being tossed in the wind. And they will fall and subject themselves to whatever sounds right at the time because there's nothing set for them. They start, but they don't finish. They struggle to start and make decisions. They just get stuck where they are. And so the advice that's given, the wisdom that the sluggard needs, is not given from some great philosopher or teacher. It's from an insect. My dad's an entomologist. Right? He said, hey, I want you to learn something from a bug. I'm like, man, that's, I mean, I'm dumb, but I didn't realize I was dumber than a bug. And when we talk about work, I want you to do one thing. Don't think just job occupation. Biblical work goes far beyond that very narrow focus. But there are three lessons, in fact, that the wise can learn from the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler. Lesson one. Be internally motivated. Now, there's some, right, they're going to hear that and go like, well... You know, technically, she has a queen. The ant does have a ruler, so that's not... Like, please don't be that guy, all right? Like, just don't do that. Like, don't be like, oh, I'm going to argue a technicality and miss the whole... That's not the purpose of the proverb. That's not the purpose. Don't ignore wisdom because you can argue with it on a technicality. That's not the point. The point is internal motivation, okay? The ant does not have someone looking over his shoulder, does not have someone forcing him to do the work, and have somebody checking on him and doing, you know, a staff evaluation for him. He just works. As followers of Jesus, our motivation should come not from external forces pushing us forward, but from internal desire and pursuit. And the desire that we have, which should internally drive us as believers, comes from Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. The motivation that we have as believers that drives us to work and to work well in this life is our love for Jesus. So if you're not appreciated at work, you work for Jesus. If the person next to you does less work than you but makes more, you work for Jesus. When you come home from work and your spouse asks you to help them around the house, you work for Jesus. Because the principle of Colossians 3 is this. As Christians, we should be the best spouses, the best parents, the best workers. 
So much so that we should be the gold standard that the world looks at as an example. Companies that don't have anything to do with Christianity or even are opposed to Christianity in their origin should desire to hire Christians because they recognize that we, our reputation as being the best workers out there because what we do, we don't do for people. We don't do for others. Because if you do, if you work for your boss or your paycheck or whatever, people are not always going to be worthy of your best. They're not. But Jesus always is. And when we are motivated by our love for Jesus, we are driven and compelled. The internal motivation that drives us as Christians is to work hard and to work our best at all that we do in every area of our lives. Our motivation and drive to work comes from our love of Jesus. Laziness then reflects a lack of love for Jesus. Continuing on. She prepares her bread in summer. This is lesson number two. The key word here is summer. Lesson is hard work. Summer is the hottest part of the day. To work and toil outside is the most difficult in summer. And it's the easiest time to not do it. Because during summer, for the ant, food is readily abundant. So they could just lay around in the shade, eat the food that's available, and be fine. But the ant works hard, gets the job done in summer, doesn't complain, doesn't worry about, oh, I can't, it's just so hot, you know, it's too difficult, I just don't want to do it. No, they work even in summer for lesson three and gathers her food in harvest. That is to be future-minded. The reason the ant works hard even in summer, the reason they overcome obstacles and toil is to prepare for winter because winter is coming. Let me, I'm just to be clear. Like, I'm not talking literally. Like, we live in South Carolina. Right? We have two seasons, summer and January. Like, <laughs> so it doesn't really, listen, winter is going to find all of us in different ways at different places. The question is, what do you do when there's plenty? What do you do when you have the time and the energy? What do you do with Jesus when you feel close to him and are bonded to him? Are you storing up that relationship, building that relationship so when the hard struggles come, you're prepared? Followers of Jesus, we are not short-sighted. We're not doing YOLO nonsense. We work hard to prepare for what we know is coming. It's easy to just turn to the comforts of life, to get caught up in the pleasure, to say no to the things that Jesus calls us to do because it makes life easier today. But as followers of Jesus, we don't live for today. We leverage today for a greater tomorrow. And the section concludes, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. See, the sluggard procrastinates. They treat the time and the life that Jesus gives them as if it's not a big deal. And they let opportunity after opportunity pass them by. I'll deal with it later. I'll address that later. I'll get to it. 
there's two primary reasons that this happens in our lives. The first is pain and self-pity. We encounter a hardship. We get hurt. Somebody betrays us or lets us down. Things don't turn out the way we expected them to. We get disappointed. And, and we just, for one reason or another, one thing or another, we just get stuck. Right? It's not malicious. It's not intentional. It's just something happens and we just kind of get trapped where we are. And like this weight kind of piles on us. The longer we sit there, the harder it gets to move. And we start getting indecisive and afraid and insecure because we're stuck due to our circumstances. The second is we confuse intention with investment. My heart's in the right place. That's all that matters. I want good things. I want godly things. I want to see God's work get done. I want to be a part of it. I want to glorify him. I want to do all that. My heart is pure and it's good. And yet I'm not doing anything with it, but I desire the right things. Cool. You know, for a long time, I used to drive by the gym every day. And I would tell myself, I want to get in shape. I want like abs, you know, and I want, I want like muscles, and I want to actually look like I could be a bouncer so that people will actually believe that when I tell that story. I did that every day for months. You know what changed? Great big pile of nothing. Because wanting, desiring the right things, healthy things, good things means nothing if you don't act accordingly. We are called to work, to be active in the world that God made for us. We have jobs to do. For the young, what this means is don't spend all your free time playing video games and watching TikTok videos. Like get a hobby, find something that you can do that benefits someone other than yourself. For the older, what this means is don't just like circle up in a holy huddle and sit on your back porch watching your neighbors all the time. Don't join some HOA and spend all your time trying to police where everybody else keeps their trash can. Okay? Like, legitimately get a hobby. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, I get into the HOA thing and I'm like, I'll be here all day. <sighs> oh, Lord help me. <sighs> Have something to do. We all need this. And I, when I say have something, I don't mean like it has to be hard work. Like I need to go out and plow a field by hand. No, but have something that gives you purpose, that gives meaning, that you can put work into. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to have work. We're called to have responsibilities. We're called to be engaged in things. Because if we don't, what we end up doing is sitting around worrying everybody else. Don't do that. Some of you hear this and you go, yes, I'm so glad you're saying this. I got some people that I know need to hear this because they're a bunch of lazy bums. <laughs> you're laughing because that was what you were doing five seconds ago. <laughs> I know. This is not my first rodeo, right? So I was like, I want so-and-so to hear this or this person to hear this because it's so great that you're talking to them because I know you're not talking to me. <laughs> Let me give you a really crucial piece of Bible interpretation. If you read a verse of the Bible and your thought is, this doesn't apply to me, you're almost guaranteed to be wrong. Okay. 
say, no, man, you need to ease up. You don't understand. I get up at 4 in the morning. I work till 8 at night. I work hard. I'm a high-achieving, high-level leader at my workplace. There ain't nothing about me that you can apply sluggard to. None of us exist in a singular arena of life. And you may work really hard at your job, but that is good. I'm not diminishing that. But sometimes it's easy to get so focused at working hard at our job that we become a sluggard with our spouse, that we become a sluggard with our kids, that we become a sluggard in our relationship with Jesus and in our pursuit of the work that he calls us to do. It's easy to go like, man, I work 50 hours at this job. I do all this stuff. I'm very busy, so I don't have time for Jesus. If we're being honest, we all have an area in our lives in which we are sluggish. So what do we do with that? How do we overcome it? Whether we're just busy and don't have time and don't know how to get time to do these other things that we do desire to do, but we just don't have the energy for it. How do I get out of that? How do I get to a spot if I'm just laying around and I just feel unmotivated and trapped where I am? If I'm stuck, how do I get free from that? Here's the good news. The solution for getting unstuck where you are, whatever area of sluggishness is and whatever reason you have it, is the same. It's Jesus. It's look to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. And you need to understand this. This is the pivotal piece. And some of you guys, I'm going to tell you, you need to hear this. You need to write it down. You need to inscribe it on your hearts. You need to preach it to yourself over and over again because this is the area that the devil constantly attacks you and you continue to let him do it. God loved you. Not, listen, not some future version of you where you're doing great and you're crushing life. God loved you. He sent Jesus for you. God gave you his best. The best he had to offer, he gave it for you. Out of his great love for you. Okay? God loved you in your mess. He loved you in your brokenness. He loved you in your stuckness. God loved you at your worst. And when you were at your worst, God sent you his best. That is the depth of his love for you. The motivation that we need to break from the stuckness of this life that tries to hold us in place and make us inactive and unproductive in God's world is to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Because the Jesus who labored for you to the cross calls you to labor for him. Church, the foundation of everything that we believe, long for, hope in, the foundation of our salvation, of our eternity, and of our life is built on work. <gasps> Did he just say, we're saved by work? Yes, he did. But before you go running out the door, <laughs> Ephesians 2.10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The foundation of what we believe, of what we hope for, the joy, the peace, and the hope we have of salvation and life is built on work. But the good news of the gospel of grace is that the work that it is built on is not our work, it's Jesus' work. It's not us dependent, it's Jesus' dependent. See, we are the work of Jesus, called to the mission of Jesus, according to the purpose of Jesus, to do the work of Jesus. We were set apart by Jesus for work. So no, you are not saved by work, not by your work. But you were saved for work. And the beauty of what we are called to do is that we don't just work like we're working for Jesus. We are called to do the work of Jesus. Not to get caught up in today. Work hard for today. But there is a greater work for tomorrow. We can learn a lot from the ant. See, an ant is a hard worker. It's also a communal worker. In the church, we have this thing called the 80-20 rule. And that is 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. You know where that doesn't happen? An anthill. Have you ever seen an anthill with like half the ants just sitting around in chairs, like watching all the other ones do work? Like, I don't think the ants have chairs. Like, how would they, they have too many legs to sit. What if we stop being 80-20? And what if we as a local part of the body of Jesus, became like an anthill. Everyone running around together, achieving together, working together, preparing together for the good of others and the glory of our King who is coming soon. What if we became the anthill doing the work of the kingdom of God where each and every one of us strove to find our work, our job, our place, what we can do within the community for the advancement of the gospel? What does that look like? What does it look like to work for the kingdom? It looks like taking the grace, the love, and the joy of Jesus into the world around us. It looks like preaching the gospel, teaching people about Jesus, denying ourselves, loving others ahead of ourselves, thinking of others ahead of ourselves, which means the thought, what about me, becomes a cuss word in your life. Right, that you fall so far down on the list of things that you have to think about that in most days you don't even have time to get to you because you're so busy thinking about and considering others. It means holy obedience. It means being salt and light in the world around us. Because church, they need it. Jesus calls us to a job and we have work to do. Because I'm going to tell you something that you don't hear a lot in church, and you probably should. Suffering is normal. Struggle is normal. Pain is normal. Troubles and trials are normal. And Jesus is good. Jesus never promises us that there's not going to be pain in your life, there's not going to be tears, there's not going to be hardships. He guarantees it. What he promises is you'll never be alone in them. Because I'll be with you. 
I'll be there to comfort you so that when you walk through the storms of this life, you don't walk through them alone. Right? Remember everybody's favorite song? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, life is not, hey, if you get Jesus, there's no more shadow of death. There's no more valley. No, you still walk through the valley. But what? You are with me. We have the comfort of knowing that in the struggles and hardships that are guaranteed in this life, we never endure them alone. You know who doesn't have that? When the world around us struggles, when they experience those hardships and those trials, they don't have that hope. They don't have that comfort. They don't have Jesus standing beside them, helping them get through it. We live in a broken world. In church, we have a job to do. To invade the dark places of this life and shine the light of the grace and love of Jesus there. Our job is not, I'm gonna go to you, let me see, oh look, you're broken, let me tell you, I'm gonna fix you. No, we're not the ones who fix, we're not the ones who heal. We share with them the one who does. The work that you do for Jesus is your response to the work Jesus has done for you. It does not earn you salvation. It's what you do with the salvation that he gave to you. Our hope, our eternity, our life is built on the labor of Jesus. It is through Jesus' sacrifice, through Jesus' work that we obtain righteousness and are called children of God. It is through Jesus' work that we inherit the kingdom of God. It is through Jesus' work that we have life. What we do with that life is the demonstration of how we value and how we believe in what he gave. So we're going to wrap up the service this morning with communion. If you're a believer, if you've accepted, you follow, you surrendered your life to Jesus, we invite you to take this with us. If you didn't get them, they're on the tables here in the back. You can grab one of those. What we do with communion, what this time is for, is to remember, is to celebrate, it is to honor the work that Jesus did for us. His labor was to leave the comforts of heaven, to set an example for us, to teach us about the kingdom of God, and to die in the place of our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin. His body was broken for you and for me, that our righteousness would not be our own, but that it would be his. So as we take this together, we do so in memory and in honor of the work that Jesus did for us. Let's take it together. The cup represents his blood, his life that was poured out for us. When we take of it, we invite, we take him in, that we would be a little less ourselves and a little bit more like him. 
that the commission and cry of our heart in honor of the sacrifice that he made for us should be each and every day to breathe out ourselves and to breathe in the Spirit that we would become day by day a little more like Jesus. Let's take it together. You have been placed in a mission field in your neighborhood, at your job, your school. Every day, God surrounds you with opportunities to be salt and light, to shine his love and grace, to teach his truth, to demonstrate for others what a transformed life in Jesus looks like. Every day you have opportunities to do the work that Jesus calls you to. Don't get so caught up in the urgency of the things in this life that you lose sight of the work of the kingdom, of the greater calling, of the work that our king has called all of us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you. And our hope and our prayer, God, is that all of this would be about you and for you, that our hearts would be focused on you, that our minds would be set on you. God, I ask that you would not just give us opportunities, but give us the courage and the drive to take them. That you would use each and every one of us, wherever we are and whatever we're doing, to bring glory to yourself. That we would long for you that we would become workers in your harvest field and that we would be faithful to all you lay in front of us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.